We are entering a new study today in this book of Ruth. It's going to be a, just a great look for the next four weeks. And so uh, let's pray, and then we're going to dive right in. Father, thanks for your, uh, thanks for the fact that you speak to us and that uh, we aren't left alone in this world wondering what you have said or how you've said it, but that you have spoken to us, and you've spoken to us through your word, the written word contained in the Bible, and then the living word, Jesus himself. And so, Father, today as we crack your book open right now and as we uh, look at your word, a, a very endearing story from the Old Testament, the story of Ruth, I pray, God, that uh, you might help us to get excited uh, about the journey of this young woman and how that can even match our lives today. Lord, we've called this series, Do the Right Thing. May all of us truly do the right thing, most importantly, to trust you with all that is in us. And we pray this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. Well, there's a story told uh, that when Benjamin Franklin was the United States ambassador to France, he occasionally attended a group known as the Infidels Club. This was a group of non-believers, neutral and at times even antagonistic to organized religion, and they met regularly to read and discuss literary masterpieces. And at one point, Franklin took the Old Testament book of Ruth and changed the name so that nobody could recognize it was from the Bible, and he read it to the group. And when he got done, the group had nothing but praise for this heartwarming and authentic book, and they demanded to know where he ran across such a literary masterpiece. And it was to his great delight to tell them that it was from the Bible, a book that most of them regarded with scorn and saw as anti-intellectual and filled with a bunch of fairy tales. Folks, when people tell me that the Bible is a boring, irrelevant, and hard-to-understand book, the only thing I can assume is that they haven't really read it. Because I've been reading the Bible now since I became a Christian almost 30 years ago, and i got to tell you, though there are parts of it that are hard to understand, by and large, the Bible is filled with profound teaching and incredible stories of real-life people who have overcome seemingly insurmountable obstacles using such tools as unwavering faith in God, unconditional love for others, and a hope anchored in Jesus-like optimism. And the story that we're going to be looking at here at SBC over the next few weeks is certainly one of these kind of stories. It was written a long time ago. It takes place in a very different culture than our own, and its plot centers around external problems that most of us most likely will never have to deal with. And so we're tempted to think, well, what does the book of Ruth have to do with our lives? But listen, times never change. And human nature at its core never changes, and certainly God never changes. And so even though we're going to be looking at a 3,000-year story, I promise you, you're going to relate to the three main characters of this book. And if you listen closely, you're going to take away some powerful and life-changing things for your own life as well. It's a simple little story, the story of Ruth, easy to get and easy to remember, but filled with life-altering and livable truth. And so I want to begin today by understanding a bit about the book of Ruth, and I'm talking about its place in history and its central storyline. And to do this, I want to read for you the first seven verses of Ruth's story out of chapter 1. So if you brought a Bible with you, open up to the book of Ruth. We're going to park here, really for the next four weeks, but definitely today. If you didn't bring a Bible, we're going to put the scripture up here on the screen for you. So look up here on the screen, Ruth 1, verses 1 through 7. It says, In the day when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The man's name was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. 
But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her sons and without her husband. Then she arose with her two daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. Now, let's understand what's going on here, folks. And notice first when this is taking place. It says there in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. Our best guess is that this was about 3,000 years ago at about 1100 B.C. from what we understand of biblical history. And so within the history of the Bible, this account takes place shortly after the Israelites have entered the Promised Land, which is now modern-day Israel. And what you need to know is that it was a time of incredible unrest and lack of leadership in Israel back then. You see, they had not fully taken the land yet. And they were beginning to forget what God had done to get them there. And there was a lot of unrest and a lack of unified leadership during the time of the judges in the land at that time. And so that's the setting that takes place there, a very turbulent time for the nation Israel. And so specifically in our story here, the what and the who, simply notice a few things going on. There's obviously been a long-term famine in the land. No food, very little water for at least 10 plus years because it tells us they were there for 10 years in verse 4. And so this family from Bethlehem travels to a foreign land about 60 to 80 miles away known as Moab. I put a map up here on the screen for you there so that you can see where they went from. On the left there is Bethlehem where that yellow line starts. And so they made their way across Israel and then over the dead, around the Dead Sea and then south up into the mountainous range of Moab. And you got to remember, they didn't have cars, trains, planes, or anything like that back then. They walked this journey. So it would be like you and I walking up to Camp Verde. Or you and I walking up to Payson, right? So getting up out of the heat into the mountains where there might be some more moisture, some rain, because there's been a famine in the land. And as the family made their way up there, we have Elimelech. And we assume he's a godly and righteous guy because his name means God is king. The mother's name is Naomi. Her name means my pleasant one. You're going to want to hang on to this because there's some irony associated with this as we get to the end of the chapter. And then the two sons are Malon and Kilion. Their names mean sickly and failing health, which is also going to come into play here. And while away, Elimelech dies, and then Malon and Kilion marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. Everybody always messes that up, Ruth and Oprah. It's not Oprah. Her name is Orpah. Look at the spelling there. And shortly after they get married there, it says that Malon and Kilion lived up to their names, and they died as well. And so this leaves Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah left. The famine then ends, and Naomi decides to head back to Israel, her hometown of Bethlehem. Again, I've shown you on the red there, they headed back to Bethlehem. And so from this point on, just simply notice that this has been rough times for this Old Testament family. A terrible economy, being away from their home, death seemingly before one's time, all in a day and age that is clearly not as friendly as ours when it comes to travel, living condition, employment opportunities, a friendly government, things like that. And the three main players that you're going to be exposed to from this point on are going to be Naomi, Ruth, and a guy named Boaz that we're going to see in the next chapter. If you want to understand the book of Ruth, just remember three main people. Naomi, the mother, Ruth, the daughter-in-law from Moab, and then Boaz, who we're going to talk about next week. 
And folks, each chapter in this short little book, there's only four of them, is going to teach us something powerful about God and ourselves. And so with this background, here's what chapter 1 teaches us. And it's our main point on your outline this morning. And that is that in all things and through all circumstances, choose to follow God. That's the main message of Ruth chapter 1. That in all things and through all circumstances, choose to follow God. Uh, folks, I've got to tell you, I've been reading the book of Ruth now for years. I've read it numerous times. It's one of my favorite Old Testament stories. And every time I read the book of Ruth, as I read that all these poor people went through, like famine and relocation and sickness and death and adjusting to another culture and depression and confusion and isolation, I walk away going, man, what separated the men from the boys and the women from the gals in this book is who chose to follow God and who didn't. I mean, you're going to see as we go along here in just a minute, this is the key that the author wants us to see in this story. That the highlight that the author wants us to see right here in chapter 1 is that though life is going to throw us some curveballs at times and certainly not always be what we want it to be, and though we have freedom to feel what we need to feel and even wrestle with things in our head and our heart, that in the end, to stay in the ring with God and make sure that you walk with him, not rejecting him like so many people do, thus distancing themselves from him. That's the point that the author makes clear right in this very first chapter. And to hammer this home, isn't it interesting that the author gives us two very clear and true-to-life examples? very different examples of people who chose to walk with God in the midst of some difficult circumstances, and they are Ruth and Naomi here. Ruth and Naomi. And I want to spend the remaining time we have today just showing you the different women here and how even in the midst of their difficult circumstances, they still chose to walk with God. So first, let's take a look at Ruth. And here's what Ruth teaches us. This is point one under your main point, and that is that even in your confusion and ignorance, choose to follow God. Can you do that? Even in your confusion, confusion and ignorance, choose to follow God. And so let's read on at what happens here with Ruth and see if you can pick up, uh, just in her confusion and ignorance, what she chose to do when it came to following God. I'm going to read verses 8 through 18, the longest section of chapter 1. But we're going to read this whole story before we get done here in four weeks. And so uh, picking up verse 8, it says, But Naomi said to her da two daughters-in-law, Go. Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, you may become, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I too am old and, and have no husband. If I should say that I even have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear some sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, or to me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. 
And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So track what's happening here, folks. Naomi obviously makes a decision in light of her culture back then to leave her two daughters-in-law in Moab so that they might marry and move on. And you got to see, that was not an easy decision for Naomi to make. I mean, they were obviously very close, and so they fight her at first. And it says in verse 9 and verse 14 there that they wept aloud and that they wept again. But in the end, as we just read, Orpah reluctantly says fine and says goodbye. But Ruth, notice Ruth, chooses to go with Naomi. And what I need you to see is that both as a motivation to this, as well as a result of this, she was choosing to follow God. You don't want to miss this, folks. Ruth chooses to go with Naomi, but what drove her in this and what becomes the result of this was a choice to likewise follow God. Now, notice with me two things going on in Ruth's choice here that will show you this. First, notice Ruth's confusion and her ignorance. I mean, I think when we read this text closely, we see that Ruth had a lot of confusion and ignorance going on in her life at that time. Look at verses 4 and 15. It says, These, meaning the two sons, took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. Then skip down to verse 15. It says, And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Focus on those two phrases, Moabite wives and her gods. Moabite wives and her gods. I'm telling you, those are loaded with meaning when you understand the context of the Old Testament. You see, when it says there in verse 4, Moabite wives, this takes us all the way back to Genesis 19, where it tells us the whole history of Moab. And for those of you who don't think that the Bible's a very, well, candid and even raw book, you've got to read Genesis chapter 19. Because in that story, we read about Lot, Abraham's nephew, and how as he was getting older and his wife died. Y'all remember that story, right? How his wife died. Okay, we don't need to go into that. When his wife died, he was left now with two daughters. And so the two daughters were awfully afraid that there was going to be no lineage to carry on for them and for the family. And so they do something rather gross and disgusting. And that is that one night when their father was getting ready for bed, they got him drunk and one of the daughters slept with her father and he didn't remember it. And the next night they did the same thing and the other daughter slept with her father and then they bore two sons and they named them Moab and Ammon. And the name Moab, is this not gross, means from father. I mean, that's how sick human nature can get. That, that's what that meant back then. But that was the formation of the, of the nation Moab. And from that point on, Moab chose not to follow the God of Israel. And most of the time, they became an enemy of Israel. They had a very syncretistic religion, meaning they mixed some of the things of Israel with lots of things of the world and culture and animistic types of religions and things like that. And that's what it means then when, secondly, it says they're her gods. There was actually one main god in Moab back then, the god Chemosh, which was a totally man-made religion complete with worshiping idols, sacrificing humans, superstition. You get the idea. And the point is, folks, is that Ruth was raised in this type of faith. Please see, it was deeply embedded in her culture, and it was deeply embedded in her upbringing. And yet for the last few years, just a few years, because that's about how long she was married to Malon, she'd been introduced to the God who made her and the God who loved her. And so for this, look at verses 8 and 9. It says, But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord 
grant that you find rest. Focus on that twice-repeated phrase there, the Lord, the Lord. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh or Jehovah. It simply means the self-existent, eternal God, the one true God who made this world, who made us, who loves us, who came to us in Jesus Christ. It's the Lord. And you got to believe that both Ruth and Orpah had been introduced to God. Elimelech would have seen to that. And you got to believe that they observed the customs and belief systems associated with following and worshiping Jehovah. Again, he would have seen to that. But all of this was new to them and obviously not very clear cut. I mean, think about it. If you were raised in one faith and then began seeking out truth via another, you know that it would be confusing and scary. And this is clearly seen in the choice that Orpah made. I mean, initially she said she didn't want to go back, but then when pushed, she said, okay, I'm going back. It obviously wasn't clear-cut for Orpah. And my point is, is that I'm not sure it was completely clear-cut for Ruth either. In other words, we have to assume a modicum of ignorance and confusion going on given all of the things that she had been through. All of this was new to her. And so there had to have been some confusion. But despite the confusion, and this is the point, look at her resolve. Look at verse 14. This is the key verse out of all of chapter 1. It says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. She clung to her. I love that phrase, clung to her. It's the Hebrew word debak. And it literally means, obviously, to cling, to adhere, to stick fascinating. It's the same word used in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 when it says that a husband's going to leave his or mother or wife's gonna, or woman's going to leave her father and mother and cleave to her husband and the two will become one flesh. That's the Hebrew word debak there. Leave and cleave. That's the idea here. Ruth was clinging to Naomi just like couples will cling to each other in marriage. And so we got to ask what would make her stick so closely and tightly? We'll look at verses 16 to 18. It says, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you will go, I will go. Where you will lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Now get this. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. Therefore, I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Don't miss this, folks. Ruth's resolve had everything to do with choosing God. It was all about your God, my God, and the Lord. Do you see that there? I love how the famous commentators, Kyle and Dalish, probably one of the most trusted commentaries on the Old Testament, says it. Listen to this. They say, and I quote, with Ruth, it was evidently not merely strong affection and attachment by which she felt herself so drawn to her mother-in-law that she wished to live and die with her, but a leaning of her hearts toward the God, a leaning of her heart towards the God of Israel and his laws, of which she herself was probably not yet fully conscious, but which she had acquired so strongly with her Israelite connections. Please see this, folks. She chose God. Even in the midst of her confusion and her ignorance, she chose God. And so just so you and I apply this today, let me ask you, do you realize? That when you and I don't completely see clearly, and there's so many times we don't, that when confusion is running rampant, that we must still choose what is right, especially the choice to follow God and trust him in and through it all. Have you learned that yet in life? Because it's such a key lesson 
that there's many times when we can't escape confusion, we can't escape ignorance. I mean, we're only finite. God knows that. But he says, even when you're right there in that crucible, make a choice and make a choice to follow me and do the right things. Because as we're going to see, Ruth's choice to follow God then is going to lead her in chapter 2, 3, and 4 to do the right things. That's what we've entitled this series. And it all is going to end up well for her. But it began in her confusion and her ignorance to follow God. When I was uh, pastoring in southwest Ontario during my very first senior pastorate about 10 years ago, um, I was once coming back from being in Detroit where my previous pastorate was, and I experienced what the folks in Ontario call a streamer. Uh, look up here on the screen. Some of you might not know what a streamer is. It's kind of like what I would label a mini blizzard. It's where all of a sudden you're driving down the road and a huge swatch of snow, really about one mile to ten miles long, caused by the lake effect there, comes just right across the barren landscape there and it dumps more snow in a very short period of time than anything I've ever seen. Kind of like our monsoons here, it's called a streamer. And again, it's different than just a little snowstorm. I mean, it's just like blinding white everywhere, and it only lasts for about 20 or 30 minutes. And so one day I was traveling again from Detroit to London there, and uh, I was on the 401, which is the main artery there, and I, I hit one of these streamers. And I'd never seen so much snow in my life. Immediately the road was gone. I mean, all the lines were gone, the outer lines were gone. I couldn't even see the markers very well because the snow was so blinding. And when you're caught in something like that, you're obviously asking yourself, going 60, 70 miles an hour, what do you do? And so I thought I got some choices here. I could slow way down, which seems like the most logical thing to do. The only problem is, is you got all this traffic behind you right now, and if you slow down too fast or too much, you're going to cause a pileup. So I thought that might not be a great idea. So I thought, secondly, maybe I should pull over, right? The only problem is, where? I mean, I couldn't see anything. I thought, I don't even know where the road is anymore. So I thought maybe the third idea would be just to keep going and follow the faint light in front of me and hope that it's a semi-truck, right? I, I thought maybe somebody else knows where they're going here. Again, those big semis, because they were barreling through southwest Ontario there. I thought just follow them and stay on the lines that are being created. And that's what I did that day. And though I don't know if it was completely the right choice, I come to find out that's what most people in Ontario do when this hits them because it seems to be the best choice. I got through. I got through that time. And the point is obvious, folks, is that you and I need to choose God to follow him during our confusion, our snowstorm, our streamer. In other words, we don't need to stop as many folks do. We don't need to get sidelined as many folks do. We need to keep going and we need to follow God. He's the light ahead of us, as faint as it might be, even when we can't see clearly, even in our confusion and our ignorance, even when the snowstorm hits, we need to follow God. You know, my weeks are all the same here at Scottsdale Bible Church. Um, and when I say all the same, I'm just saying, as I mentioned earlier, human nature never changes. I don't think our core problems ever really change. And so just this week, I was dealing with much of what I deal with every week. And that's what I was dealing with, people who have experienced significant job loss, marriages that have gone south, serious sickness, death imposed on some people's loved ones way too early in their life, financial trouble that many are going through nowadays. And, you know, I thought about it. I thought, you know, these things can create tremendous confusion. And many times you can't really see your way out of them. Let's just be honest about that. And it produces a tendency, and tell me if this isn't true, in many of us to want to hole up 
and or go our own way. Have you ever experienced that? I mean, the tendency is just to want to say, I'm just stopping dead in my tracks. I'm just going to hole up and just batten down the hatches and just sort of not do anything. Or we tend to just say, I'm just getting out of the ring. I'm tired of fighting this thing, and I'm just going to sort of do my own thing. And yet, please see, folks, that faith is the opposite of both of those things. Faith says, I'm going to keep moving on. Faith says, I'm going to trust God anyways. Faith says, I'm looking to him, even though the light is faint, and I'm going to follow him. And as I thought about it this week, you know, I thought Ruth is such an example here. And I don't mean this is a slight at all against Ruth, because, man, she, what a godly woman. But I thought, you know, if she can do it, anybody can. And what I mean by that is that she lacked so many resources to make her choice, and yet she chose God anyways, and she chose rightly. She did the right thing. I mean, think about it, folks. She didn't have the Word of God. I mean, she might have had some teachings from Elimelech back then of what he remembered from the tabernacle teaching because the temple wasn't even built yet, but she didn't have, like, the Word of God in front of her. She couldn't, like, go into her little quiet spot like you and I can and take one of our five Bibles that sits around the home and say, I think I'll get some encouragement right now. I'm kind of confused and ignorant. She couldn't do that. I mean, she didn't have the revealed Word of God to her. All she knew is that Elimelech probably told her, God made you, and he loves you, and he made this world, and he's reached out to us in his law. You know, that's all she knew. And yet she still chose to follow God. I thought about, you know, she didn't have a community of faith. I mean, think about that. She couldn't call up her friend and say, you know, I'm really struggling today, and I'm kind of hurting my faith. Could you pray for me? She couldn't do that. She was a Moabite. I mean, remember that. And she'd call somebody up there, what are you nuts? What are you talking about? Yahweh, Jehovah? I mean, Chemosh, go sacrifice a human or something. That's what she would have been told. I mean, she didn't have a community of faith like we have today. And get this, she didn't have the light of Christ. You know, Christ hadn't come yet, obviously. It's 1,100 years before that. And so she didn't have the truth and the grace that we now have in Jesus Christ, God's revelation to us. Think about all that she didn't have and all that you have, even if you got no money and all the other things going on in your life right now, you got the Word of God, you got a community of faith, you have Christ who is your light, and yet she still chose, still chose God. And that's why I say if Ruth can do it, my word, any of us can do it. You can do this. Now, folks, listen, as we hear and process the main point of Ruth 1, that in all things and in all circumstances, we must choose to follow God. Uh, please see that Ruth herself shows us that even in our confusion and ignorance, we can still choose to trust and obey. It's the first thing that we see. Now, we're not done yet. There's one other example. More quickly, as I mentioned earlier, a very different example of somebody choosing God. But you're going to like this one because I think you're going to relate to this gal as well, and that's Naomi. And so here's what Naomi teaches us. Look up here on the screen, and that is that even in your hardship and bitterness, choose to follow God. In other words, if Ruth struggled with confusing thoughts, please see this. Naomi struggled with difficult and painful emotions. So it wasn't just a head thing. It was a hard thing for her. And yet in the midst of that, she still chose to follow God. And so let's finish this text here. I'm going to read verses 19 to 22 to you, and then I'm going to also read 13b as an addendum to that, or as a beginning to that, so that you can understand the context here as we finish the story. 13b says this, Naomi's speaking, and she says, For it is exceedingly bitter for me, to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. And then skip down to verse 19, and let's finish the story in chapter 1. It says, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. 
Now when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And, And so focus there, folks, on verses 13b and then 20 to 21, and simply note that with all that has happened to Naomi, and I'm talking the famine, the relocation, the foreign land, the loss of her husband, the loss of her two sons, the absence of one of her daughters-in-law, that this has obviously left her feeling very hurt, frustrated, angry, and bitter. That word bitter there in verse 20 is the Hebrew word marar, marar, and it literally means to be bitter or to be grieved. In its most literal definition, it actually means a hardship that makes one hard, a bitterness that makes one bitter. It's used in Exodus chapter 1, verse 14, in talking about the Israelites when they were under the Egyptians, and it was a very bitter time for them. It's used in the book of Job, when Job refers to his troubles and says, man, they've just made me bitter in my life. And we all know that story. That's the word that, that uh, Naomi's using here. And she actually, this is interesting, adopts the noun form of the word here and actually names herself Mara, which means bitter. She says, my name is now Mara. And I asked you earlier to remember her, what her real name meant, meant. Anybody remember what Naomi means? My pleasant one. What a contrast. Do you see that there? I mean, she's saying, I was named my pleasant one. I'm the happy-go-lucky. I'm the youngest child. I'm the one that, you know, is just all happy and everything seems to go well. I'm super positive. And now she comes back and says, now my name's Mara. I'm bitter. I'm hard. I'm angry. And by the way, folks, who wouldn't be if those things happened to us? Amen? I mean, the things that she went through would make anybody broken, hurt, and a bit hardened and angry. And so the fact that she's saying God caused all this in my life and God did that, a lot of us have been there too. I mean, we could argue theologically whether she's correct or not. But the reality is, is that that's what she's feeling. And she's feeling very angry and bitter at that time. And so she's hard and bitter, and probably even for good reason. More of most of us would be at this place if we were in her circumstances. But in and through all of this, and this is so key, with this will be done, Notice with me Naomi's resolve. It happens very early on in the story. Even in the midst of her grief and her bitterness and her anger, Naomi makes a resolve. Look at verses 6 through 9 of Ruth 1. It says, Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that, oh, this is interesting, the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as he has dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Don't miss two key things going on here, folks. First, Naomi was still looking for God and his movement and his leading. That's what it says early on there when it says that the famine had ended and and the Lord had caused it to end. That's the author's way of saying that Naomi's still at her sights on looking as to what God might do next to deliver her. That though she was angry, though she was bitter, she was still fixing her sights 
on Jehovah, on her God, the one who made her and loves her. And then notice, obviously, here that she chooses to follow God and trust him still. It says she set out from that place, went on the way of return. She says in verses 8 and 9, May the Lord deal kindly with you. May the Lord grant that you find rest. I mean, she's still looking to God. And she's still following his lead. And so even in the midst of Naomi's hardship and bitterness, which she probably had a right to, she chose, followed, and trusted the Lord. And that's the lesson of chapter 1. That even when you and I are experiencing our own hardship and difficulty, and even when you and I cop an attitude of anger and frustration, even at God sometimes, we're still asked to follow him. We're still required to follow him. I love the illustration of a boxing ring. You know, we're still required to stay in the ring with God and fight it out. We are. The worst thing that you could do would be to say, ding, I'm out of the ring, get out and quit the fight. No, Paul the Apostle said that I'm going to fight the good fight. And that's what we fight as well. We stay in the ring with God and we follow him anyway. I could tell you so many stories of people who have done this over the years. One of the blessings I get as a pastor is to see and journey with many people who in the midst of very difficult times choose to follow God anyways. And it's a joy for me to see. I'll never forget early on in my pastoral ministry in my very first church in Detroit, a young guy named Ryan came in to see me. And y'all would have loved Ryan. I mean, he was young, energetic, athletic, successful, winsome. He was raised in a Christian home. I mean, the kid just seemed to have everything going for him. He was in his late 20s at the time. But as he came in to talk to me, he was sharing with me about a very tough and arduous last eight years, and it had everything to do with his marriage. In other words, he said, Jamie, I was born kind of with a golden spoon in my mouth, and I thought I married the right gal, and she was from a Christian home, and she's a Christian gal too. But I just got to tell you, it's been a very difficult eight years. We're wired very differently. We don't seem to get along very well. We argue all the time, and then there's a lot of silence and the cold treatment. We don't have much joy. And I said, as I always do, well, what have you tried? I mean, tell me you've seen a counselor in the eight years. Jamie, we've been to three or four different counselors. We've tried many, many different things. Just can't seem to make it work. And I sort of encouraged him in this and said, well, you know, I, I mean, you know, what are you going to do? And, and I remember a comment that he made to me. And uh, I'll never forget this as long as I live. He said to me at one point, we were talking about what he's going to do. He said this. He said, you know what's so frustrating, Jamie? He said, as I know what the right decision is here, I just don't want to do it. He said, I know what the right decision is. I just don't want to do it. And the right decision was to stay in this marriage and continue to fight. I mean, it was. I mean, I asked him early on. I said, has there been any unfaithfulness, i.e. Matthew 19? No. I said, is she an unbeliever who's abandoned you? 1 Corinthians 7, no. I said, well, you know, it doesn't seem to be any reason to dissolve a marriage like this. Would there be? He's like, no. And he said, and that's what's so frustrating. He said, I'd like to dissolve this thing. I'd like her to cheat on me. I'd like her to, to declare herself an unbeliever and abandon me so I'd be out of this thing. But none of that's happening. And he said, so you know what? I, I know what the right thing to do is. I just don't want to do it. And let me ask you, have any of you ever been in that spot before? Maybe not with your marriage, but another area of life. I sure have. Gosh, I've been confronted with many right things to do when it comes to following God. It's just that there are going to be really hard things to do. Uh, here's one of the things Ruth 1, 1 teaches us. And that's that when life is going really well, I think it's relatively easy to follow God. You found that? I mean, it is. 
you know, life's going well, I'm going to church this morning, you know? I mean, it's, just, it's easy to follow God in circumstances like that. But when life's really hard, and it does get hard, we've all been there, that separates the men from the boys, the women from the gals. Then we know who's got spiritual muster and who doesn't. Because it's in those times that we're tested. It's in those times that we have to ask ourselves, am I going to follow God just in the good times or also in the bad times? See, Ruth had confusion and ignorance. She said, I'm following God. Naomi had bitterness. She said, I'm following God. And as we track through the story, you're going to see some wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things happen to these ladies as they continue to follow God. Through all things and in all circumstances, we need to choose to follow God. By the way, Ryan, happy ending. He chose to follow God. He stayed in the ring there with his wife. I lost track with him, but I'd like to think that God's going to did in his life what we're going to see happens in the book of Ruth. Last Sunday, because we had a vision Sunday and we had a commitment time at the end, we uh, did not celebrate communion. Uh, that throws some of you, I know. I'm a high-control person, too. And, uh, but I said to some of you when you came up to me and called me a heretic for not having communion that uh, we were going to have it this week. And that was actually also by design because today is a wonderful day for us to celebrate the Lord's Supper because today is also a day of commitment. Many of you are faced at a crossroads right now in your walk with the Lord. You're going through some confusing times, maybe some bitter times. And uh, this is a time for you to re-up your commitment to the Lord. As you guys know, these elements that we're going to hand out to you, the bread and the juice, are very, very similar to the elements that Jesus had on that very last Passover meal before he was arrested and crucified. And he took that bread and he took that juice and he said, this bread is my body, this, this wine is my blood, it's going to be shed, it's going to be given for you. And then we are told to do this, to eat these things, until he returns. And we're still waiting. And so part of our worship as a church is to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, on a regular basis. And that's what we're going to do today. So we're going to play some soft music as we hand out the elements. This is an open communion table, meaning that if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a believer in him, please take these element, elements and partake with us. We're going to hand them all out, hold them, worship Christ during this time, maybe recommit yourself to him during this time. And then after the song is done playing and we've handed all the elements, I will lead us together in partaking. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this wonderful Old Testament story that we get to bathe in over the next four weeks. And Lord, I thank you that you took such simple, everyday people like Ruth, or as we looked at last year, like Esther, and uh, you worked powerfully in their lives. And Father, I thank you that all of us can relate to this story. All of us have gone through times of confusion, ignorance, bitterness, anger. And, uh, Father, the call to still follow you, knowing that this too shall pass, knowing that there comes weeping in the night, but joy in the morning, we're going to stay in the ring. So, God, as we enter into this communion time, the Lord's Supper, I pray, oh, I pray, God, that, uh, that you might meet us in this time, each of us individually and then collectively as a congregation. And that, Father, as we do our business with you, as we pray, as we meditate, as we look to you, that you might receive our worship and receive the commitments of our heart, I pray. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen.
such a simple thing when you think about it. Bread and juice or wine. Very common elements, but wasn't that just Jesus' style? I just love that about Jesus. Sermon on the Mount, he's looking at flowers and lilies and talking about the kingdom of God and making a word picture out of it. So it would be just like Jesus to take a Passover meal and add some very powerful symbolism to it, tying it to his body and his blood. And he did that. And, and, and so what these point us to, please don't miss this, is the fact that he loves you. He died for you. He died so that you might be brought to God, so that you might be forgiven of sin, so that you might have a relationship with God this side of heaven that will take you all the way into eternity. And so if anything would ever make us eternally grateful for something, these two things do. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread that they were eating, and he said, this bread is my body given for you, and I want you to eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup that they were drinking. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness, the remission of your sins. And whenever you drink it, remember me. God, indeed, we remember your son Jesus right now, and we thank you for his goodness, his grace, his sacrifice, his life, his resurrection that makes our faith possible. So thank you for this time of worship, and we pray it in his name. Amen. Okay, I want you to stand for a closing benediction. I do not know this for a fact, but I would not be surprised if Elimelech taught Ruth the benediction, what we call Aaron's blessing, out of Numbers chapter 6. So I'm going to read it as we close here today. It's one of my favorite blessings in the Old Testament. It says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. We'll see you next week.